Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I think it's really great to have a long-term vision. And I, this is going to sound a bit like a cop-out, Mike, but and I also think that it's good to be flexible. So I'll, I'll give you a very real example. So the team from Cambodia came to visit Australia recently. We had a conversation about this endpoint, 2030 with 100 therapists um, integrated in the public sector. And they were basically saying that time frame aside, the actual goal fits very nicely on a website, on a business card, a brochure, but the action, but the result that they are thinking about creating is obviously a lot more complicated than one sentence. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their amazing social media support. Our current sponsor is Tank with a C, and we're most grateful for their support. Tank are reimagining government relations to make it far more accessible and catered to the needs of the for-purpose sector. To learn more about Tank, just hit the link in our show notes or head to tank.com.au. My guest today is a return favourite, Wei Yo. Wei originally came on the pod some time ago as the CEO and co-founder of social enterprise Umbo, as well as the founder of OIC Australia, a charity supporting the speech therapy industry and ecosystem in Cambodia. He now triumphantly returns as a first-time author of a compelling and entirely relevant title for our time, Redundant Charities. In this exciting release, Wade draws on his experience and explores the motivations behind international charities' desire for continuous growth, the importance of local expertise on the ground, and whether a new approach to measuring the success of charities is warranted. It's a bold and compelling topic that challenges many of our closely held beliefs about what success looks like for large global charities operating abroad. This was a fascinating one to dive into with Wei, and I've just ordered a copy of his book online using the discount code he created for me and for you, our fine Humans of Purpose audience. To get yourself a copy, just head to redundantcharities.com and enter Humans of Purpose 20, all capitalized, at checkout to get your 20% discount on purchase. All links conveniently for you in our show notes. Before we get into the episode, a quick reminder that I want to see you at our 300th episode Humans of Purpose milestone celebration coming up very soon on Friday the 22nd of September, early evening at the Commons in Cremorne, starting at around 5.30. Complimentary drinks, beats and food will all be served along with great humans for company. Get your free tickets now in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Wei as much as I did. Way fantastic to be with you, mate. Sorry I missed you when I was last in Sydney, but how are you travelling? I'm doing well, Mike. Yeah, very, very excited to talk to you after, how many years has it been, Mike? I can't remember, a couple of years? I was saying that you look even better than before, and I reckon I've gone downhill, so it's probably a couple of years. That's normally my compass. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I suppose uh, becoming an accomplished author and really stepping out of the, the umbo shell and doing some wonderful things on the big stage has given you a youthful look of vitality that I want to explore today. 
So we're and also not having the longest lockdown in the world history. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No I suppose excuse. if it's all relative, we we can sort of say that the context did matter at that last time we recorded too. But right. I have I I do keep track of you, and uh, when I saw that you were doing not in a creepy way, like I'm not in the bushes watching you, but just like on socials when I saw that you were releasing a, a book, I, I reached out and I thought this is a guy that is going to write a fantastic book. So I'm really happy to oh. get into it today. I did watch your um, superb TEDx talk, and I I, th- I think the topic that you're touching on is a fascinating one. So redundant charities is what you're exploring, escaping the cycle of dependence. So let's jump in. One of the things that you said that really stood out to me towards the end of your TED talk, which has been viewed 37,000 times for anyone interested in a great TED talk, redundancy is the ultimate form of success. Now, discuss in 45 minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> Have a go. How about 45 seconds? See if I can get it down. Um, Okay. So uh, I've worked within the charity sector and in the nonprofit and social impact sector more broadly for almost two decades. And so one of the things I think about nonprofits and charities in their current form is that our definition of success is skewed. And um, we, we have this mentality in charities of bigger is better. And I talk about in this book, uh, in the first chapter, actually, about how this mentality has been infiltrated from the private sector. And there's uh, a view that more and more and more is good and growth is good. But my uh, thinking, and I'm not the only person thinking this, is that actually uh, a charity getting smaller is successful. And a charity that works itself into oblivion and doesn't need to exist is the definition of a successful charity. And so that's the proposal of the book is that a successful charity is one that makes itself redundant. That's fantastic. And I think you did actually meet that 45 second threshold. So that that's very quick. The podcast is now over. We can all go home. No, um, <laughs> what wonderful, wonderful concepts. And I think what I liked about the topic is that is the traditional conception, I think, of a charitable purpose to actually deliver on the mission and then to wind up. But I think, and maybe you want to reflect on this as sort of a comment, that the, the trend line over time has in fact been big international charities and even local charities here in Australia going bigger and bigger and bigger, multiplying. There's tens of thousands of them now. And I think part of it has also been what, what I'd call the corporatization of the charitable world. So that mm. that idea um, that being bigger, delivering bigger numbers every year um, in annual reports, more people served, getting on that sort of treadmill or hamster wheel, as you call it, is how we define success. And that probably isn't the right way to think about success anymore. It's not. And you, you, you use the example of um, the, the charity getting bigger. And one of the metrics that charities love to use is the amount of money raised. Now, to me, this is one of the most insignificant and meaningless metrics because the analogy I use in the book is it's kind of like a marathon runner boasting about how many carbs they've eaten. That doesn't tell you <laughs> about the quality of the race they've run, the time they've done, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's the same thing with the charities. It's talking about inputs. It's not necessarily even talking about outputs. So um, while I think there's you know, some discussion about efficiency in charities and obviously overheads and some, some of that discussion is misguided, um, being able just purely to say, well, we increased our donation size um, 20% from the last year, that's not really anything logical. And then the is other that, thing about this... Go on, sorry, to- Wayne, I was just going to say, is that sort of like um, a point that's made to almost give validity to a cause and a charity itself and its performance, like a a bit of a pat on the back rather than something meaningful and useful? I think it's hard to say why charities do it. I guess guess it is. Yeah, I guess it's validation of 
the cause that they're working towards and the fact that they can get attention from it and get money for it, I guess. Is it a network effect in that if I were to say, like if I say to you, I have a charity and we actually raised this amount, which is 20% more than last year, aren't I doing that with a view to you likely then thinking, oh, well, this is probably a very successful charity. I should give them my money too. Isn't that kind of the... I mean, I guess that could be part of it, but I know that that sort of mentality has actually hurt a number of charities too. Mm. So when they tend to raise too much and, you know, the example of the charity upgrading their office or upgrading their facilities, then a lot of the donations can dry up. Dry up. Sorry. So I'm not really sure what it's really an aid of, but I do see it as a bit of a boast really about how successful yep. the charity is. But as I said, it doesn't tell us anything about how effective they are. Yes. And um, I mean, like no one has ever asked the question, like, what did you eat to achieve that marathon time? So, <laughs> yep. you know, the, 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 it, maybe it is something that we've sort of learned to become a bit distracted by. And I don't know what the, the driver of that is, but you also make a really interesting point in your talk and uh, more generally around the quantitative nature of outputs um, in charities as being sort of like the, the main thing that people are obsessed with. So how many plates of food did you put up this year? How many kids did you see in a clinic? How many... Um, uh, how many people in need did you serve? And and this is interesting, and I think it does tell us something about a charity's operations, but it doesn't tell us much about how close they are to solving the problem they've set out to solve. Exactly that, exactly that. So these very um, bite-sized quantitative metrics, they're very easy to sell. And particularly when you tie it to donation amount, so every $20 you donate will be able to serve a plate of food, for example. Um, people love these kinds of things. It makes sense. It's very tangible. But like you said, Mike, it doesn't tell us anything about solving the problem. So one of the ideas proposed in the book is, well, why don't we measure success by how close we as the charity are getting towards the endpoint, towards solving the problem, as opposed to what I call addressing symptoms, which is often that, you know, um, we serve 20 kids or we put 100 girls into school. That kind of stuff can be seen as addressing the symptom rather than solving the underlying problem. Hmm. I was thinking a lot about this and, and I, I I struggled to think of an example other than the example that you give about how you've set your goals um, as a charity with OIC um, of a charity that has gone out there and said, we want to not exist at this point in time in Australia and then gone and done that and doesn't exist because they've solved the, the mission they've set out to achieve. Can you think of any recent examples of that that sort of follow that uh, principle to the letter? Yeah, I can think of a bunch and they ended up being the interviewees for my book. So when oh, okay. I started writing this book two and a half years ago, I did put a big call out. You know, I'm not the most network person in the world, but I asked and asked and asked and asked, give me some examples of charities that are doing this. And it was interesting because a bunch came forward um, and then I was able to interview them. And, you know, people do really say this about creative processes that you've got to enjoy the journey, right, as opposed to the product. Interviewing these charities that are out there bucking the trend and I think working in a way that requires a huge amount of ethics and isn't in, and they aren't incentivized to do this by the system of fundraising that we've discussed already, um, it's incredibly admirable. And I personally got a lot out of it myself and I felt a huge amount of um, joy in seeing this, this work happening. So they are out there and they're in small numbers, but I hope over time that uh, more and more join. I am actually hearing, interestingly enough, this year, in 2023, I've heard of a number of charities come forward through my networks and say, yeah, we, we are doing it in a certain way. So I'm wondering whether or not this concept is just a little bit ahead of its time and it's coming for a lot more charities. 
yes, maybe it's a bit of ahead of its time, like purpose-driven business was in 2016 when I tried to start a consultancy around. <laughs> and awesome. it sort of yeah. became a boom thing. So I think you probably are um, ahead of your time a little bit, but you're also not because I remember doing a fair bit of reading around this and particularly in philanthropic circles. And I don't ask me the, the author of the book because I, I won't remember it, but there, there was a very good book written by someone discussing how charities are very much strayed from that idea of um, solving the problem in their charter that they set out to solve and that's success. But of course, you know, charities like any other organizations have a range of different stakeholders. Uh, There are boards, there are executive teams, there are competing interests um, of major donors, supporters, uh, beneficiaries. So how do the different interests of the stakeholders involved in charities sort of play into the model that's um, prevalent today as opposed to the redundancy model that you're advocating for? Yeah, it's a, it's a great it's a great question. So how did we get to this point where it often becomes about running the machinery and keeping that hamster wheel going as opposed to solving the problem and ending it? Um, part of the issue, I think, lies in the fact that um, what I refer to, it's from Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, but um, sunk, fast, yeah, sunk cost fallacy. So sunk cost fallacy, I have put so much effort into the creation of this thing that to unwind it is um, nonsensical. And so there are a lot of hoops that have to go, that charities have to go through to become established. And as you mentioned, boards and donors and relationships. And then to unwind that, it's difficult because um, when a leader does that and and winds down a charity, it's not seen as success. It's seen as a failure. Mm. And so there are a number of uh, charity CEOs uh, who are mentioned in the book and they talk about openly, I don't want to be the CEO who is responsible for the death of this charity. And they feel that they have a um, allegiance to their staff for that reason, and that's really admirable on one level. But it's also a little bit silly on a on an obvious level that the staff are there to serve a purpose, and once the yeah. purpose is achieved, they should probably be let go. Yes, and you do wonder whether that type of founder, uh, sorry, CEO thinking is a little bit too ahead of its time for philanthropy or major donors to sort of back because when it comes to branding, sponsorships, um, imagine being out there as a major corporate supporting a charity who's said they don't want to exist in a year or two when they're there maybe the sponsorship cycle is five to ten years and you know major branding opportunities. So that is interesting. But uh, I mean where it sort of ties back into what you were saying in your talk is that you went from being a founder and leader uh, of your organization, OIC, to a supporter in four years, and you made yourself redundant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wanted to make yourself redundant as soon as possible. So you've actually lived this mission. And how does that feel? And I mean, what what's the process like of going, taking this from theory to practice and then writing about it yourself? Oh, it's been, I mean, it's been amazing. It's been over 10 years of thinking about this. And so, you know, only in the last two and a half out of the 10 have I been spending on the book, which is, um, incredible when I think about it. Um, But yeah, OIC was created in 2013. And so the two key things about OIC that I wanted to have was the first is led by Cambodian people. Um, I was really sick of seeing um, foreign leaders essentially telling Cambodians what to do in terms of solving their own problems. And the second thing was to have a defined endpoint. And so the first thing took about four years. It took me four years to set up OIC to be ready to be handed off to local Cambodian team. And then that was achieved in 2017. And as you mentioned, I came back to Australia and then we recently set up OIC Australia. So that's a it's a funding organization for the work in Cambodia, but it's not a head office. We don't tell them what to do or how to run their programs. We are, of course, beholden to um, the establishment in Australia and the government and ACNC and so forth as well. 
Um, but we're, the, we're really there to be a different type of funder. What I mean by that is we're there to ask that question, tell us how, how you're making your journey towards exit mm. rather than, you know, how many kids got seen this year, that, that sort mm. of simplistic stuff. We want to know what steps you're taking towards your own redundancy. Yeah, and your goal is very interesting. You said you wanted 100 qualified Cambodian speech therapists by 2023, and then you'll wind up. And, mm. and so, how did you? How do you come to that? Is that sort of your idea of what's enough to uh, foster the local uh, capacity, capability, infrastructure, and systems to kind of spring up uh, organically with that kind of kickstart, and then uh, be self-sufficient or self-sustaining? Yeah, so just a slight correction, 2030, just my heart just oh, beat sorry, a little bit fast. No need to rush. No need yeah. to rush. <laughs> just took seven years off. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, 2030. So the idea was we looked at population data from the US. We said how many speech therapists per capita. And then we worked out a figure that would suit the Cambodian population. And then we thought about, well, to get from zero to that number being 6,000 plus is way too far in the future. Let's think about starting this and then setting up an ecosystem where it must develop by itself. So we thought about zero to 100. We thought about the time frame, and then we thought about what kind of ecosystem would have to exist. That's why there's a bit about integrated into the public sector, mm -hmm. i.e. integrated into the government. And then that means that it is there to service poor people. And if we stimulate the demand in um, the public sector and we stimulate the demand for students to go to university and so on, then we've got a sector that's going to grow by itself. It's very interesting. So you've actually done a bit of that work, which, and I wonder, I mean, for me, that is a real North Star because traditionally when you're in a for-purpose or a charitable organisation, you've got a purpose statement that's that's like, you know, uh, we want to, uh, you know, end disadvantage faced by this group by, yep. you know, this date, but it doesn't really mean kind of ended or there's no real tangible way of measuring whether that's fulfilled. So perhaps what's interesting about this is the clear parameters, boundaries and quantification of what the end state looks like. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that that's an interesting point because in order to make a charity redundant, the most important thing is having a time frame. I think that's what I learned in writing this book and talking to other people is, you know, charities do say this all the time, of course. Oh, we are working ourselves out of a job. You know, and then you kind of go like, well, uh, when? And then there will yeah. be some sort of like, oh, hey, look, isn't it raining outside kind of type comment. So um, I think the, t the time frame holds you to account. And it doesn't matter. I mean, with OIC um, in Cambodia and with the, with the pandemic and everything, it's going to be delayed probably. And that's totally fine. And, and, and that's not important. The Keeping to the time frame is not important. It's about the intention that you set and then setting everything up so that you know that that's coming up ahead. Now, in terms of the rest of the goal and how specific you, you should be, I think that's open to debate. So with um, OIC in Cambodia, it's, a very, it's very much a smart goal. With some of the other charities that I talked to, they were more vague. They were more interested in just a particular time frame. And then they'd set that intention to their government partners and say, we're not going to be here in 10 years' time. And then they let them respond. How do you think this would impact or how did it impact upon, um, I'm not sure if you asked this as a question as part of your book and the and the process, but how does this impact upon like strategic planning cycles and budgeting and, and all that kind of thing? Well, it, it makes it more long-term focused um, and it's very easy to think about whether or not funding opportunities that crop up are relevant to the mission of the organization because there is of course this thing which i'm sure you've explored the podcast mission creep or mission drift it's called yeah. so basically oh we're just going to do whatever the money allows us to do and be opportunistic mm. um but 
when that sort of issue came up in Cambodia, it would be very easy to then say, is that helping us get towards the endpoint? And if it isn't, we're not really interested in it at all. Um, so it gives you a, a sort of level of discipline that I think is really well. Great. I mean, I think I think it's almost like quite a big ask. Um, ethics uh, in terms of clarity of ethics, it's almost like a big ask for any person. Mm -hmm. um, because if I even just extrapolate from your situation, it would have been very easy for you to say, okay, well, we've we've really found that there's a big challenge with speech therapy in Cambodia, but there's also other allied health challenges, and mm -hmm. why don't we do that as well? Because we could get a lot of money to support that, and I could have a team of 38 people, you know, working full time to address that. That'd feel really good. Uh, Way would feel like, um, you know, great Mr. Uh, Big Shot CEO of an <laughs> international charity. How yeah. do you avoid getting on that hamster wheel? Mm, it's a it's another good question. So I think ego is a big part of this sector, as it is in a lot of other sectors too. So we're certainly not alone. But particularly when you feel um, like a good person because of the work that you do, and founders, and I'm you know I've been the founder multiple times, it's even more elevated in terms of the adoration that founders receive in the for purpose sector. So it's really important to be able to separate your ego and identity from that that is a lot easier said than done. I've had my own challenges with that for sure. Mm. Um, but over time, it's it's managed to happen. And part of that's just get bit like getting older. You know, when I started doing this kind of stuff, I was late 20s, early 30s. So I was a lot younger and more naive then. And I think I'd like to think that over time, I've been able to separate it more. But um, how do you, how does one manage ego in that kind of context? Because I mean, you, you, you talk about the very interesting experience of the orphanage in, in Vietnam that you were working on and sort of you, you thought you were doing this fantastic job and everything got blown away. And then it was sort of like, do I stay or do I go? And how do I best support the situation? Is, is a lot of the thinking around uh, not just ego, but self-awareness and, and thinking about what is my role in this and how am I contributing to change? 100%. Self-awareness is probably the most important skill for someone to work in this area because if you don't have that, then you don't know how you fit within the system. And if you lack self-awareness, you probably, I would assume, think the system revolves around you, yep. um, where quite clearly it doesn't. So I think having self-awareness really helps. Um, other very simple kind of tips would be, you know, making sure your identity is not your work and therefore having interests outside that are relevant as well. And I think also having things that are grounding. So I personally found when I was working in Cambodia, two things, being uh, around kids, as in my nephews and nieces, was very grounding because they don't care about like any of this kind of stuff. If you're a big shot CEO, which I wasn't, but in case they, I thought that was the what, what I was, they wouldn't really care. And then secondly, being in nature was also really grounding as well, because again, out there in the bush, you're no one, you're just a person. You've just said two things that have just nailed it for me. I mean, those are the two things I fall back on all the time. I mean, when I go home um, today, all I know is that Milo's going to grab my face, my nose, and my 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 head <laughs> and just drool all over me and give me a big hug. And he doesn't give us stuff what I do during the day. And then no. the other thing that I really fall back on is also getting into nature. So, you know, for me, um, being realizing that we are all just small specks in the universe uh, that will be long gone and have a very short amount of time to do anything useful and should just focus on that um, have been grounding things. And I think both nature and kids um, ground you in the moment particularly well. I know people talk a lot about meditation and it's um, groundingness, but play with a kid for a little bit, uh, preferably your own or, you know, a family member <laughs> or someone, you know, a friend's kid. Someone but, you have um, permission to play with. 
Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> you do use consent, um, and and also you know spend time in nature, and, and it's amazing um, how that can just bring you back to humility. In, in my experience. Yeah, definitely. And that's it's really important in the nonprofit sector, particularly as a founder, to have those experiences. I also talk about another concept. Um, you can probably tell I've already started to use like two pop psych psychology references. Another one's um, moral self-licensing. So the idea that you, um, because you do something good, so the example they gave in a book was about um, Prius drivers. So back in the day when Prius was the main <laughs> hybrid one and people feeling good about that and they looked and they examined their driving behaviour and they found that they drove more selfishly in essence. So theory is, it's all theory. Um, because I do something good, that allows me to then do something else um, in a more selfish way. So I feel like this is makes sense to me um, in the social impact space that People sort of sort of feel a certain holier than thou level of um, you know awareness, and it does tend to spill into other areas of their life. Oh, totally. I mean, the, the halo effect is a is a real thing as well. Absolutely. It's a different way to think about it, but I think um, my favourite example of that Prius moral licensing example is Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like he's, oh. he drives a Prius, um, but he's just a generally a horrible person. So it's, just <laughs> yeah. a, it's just a great example of you know not so not everybody does. A good actor is seen to be doing a good act, um, acts the same way when no one's watching. So good example yeah. there. You make an interesting distinction in in, uh, in your talk between big international charities versus lo- local charities. Why did you choose to focus on international charities? And what, what is, is there a, a salient difference or point you want to make, um, you know, just as opposed to contrasting with the Australian market for charities that, that operate here? Yeah, I think with international charities that are based headquartered in a particular country and work in another country, there are so many more dynamics that come into play. So there are cultural differences, there are power dynamics, there are um, differences, views about money, about gender, about education, um, status, and it just becomes very, very complicated. And so I think there's another layer of complication that... um, means that the power dynamics have changed. And that's why it's extra important, I think, to follow some of the things that I mentioned. So I mentioned that thing about me personally not being the leader. Um, The issue with me being the leader in Cambodia was um, groupthink, essentially Mm -hmm. people just following what I said because um, they thought that I was someone who was worth listening to. And so, of course, the danger of that is that we end up doing something that's not localised and not relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really well said. But, you know, I mean, when I think about a little bit the size of some of these charities and the amounts of them, tens of thousands of charities with some uh, employing over a thousand people, these are now, this is now a big industry. Um, So, and big industries actually create jobs that support people and economies. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, even if we think about the the local um, charities, I know that's not your focus, but the charity sector here in Australia, I think employs something like 13% of the the population. But, you know, I mean, what are we, what are we to do? Because we've got this sort of challenge where we're actually on the hamster wheel. Um, Should we be thinking about whether we just have too many charities that have ambiguous purposes? Are we thinking more about uh, whether there's a need for a consolidation? I mean, 
if you look at the data that we're, we're seeing now, a lot of charities are reporting a, a drop of about 50% in, in donor uh, income. That, that could be cost of living uh, related, could be post-pandemic related. It's very hard to tell what it is, but um, you know, people are struggling and, and struggling to, to donate um, to causes locally and abroad. Um, maybe we will naturally start to see a reduction in the number of charities out there, and um, maybe it is a fertile time to see a reorientation towards that redundancy thinking. Yeah, well, I mean, the the data would suggest otherwise, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, unfortunately, let's not put a judgment on it, just factually. Sure. Um, so the the data, I think, that was released by the ASNC uh, suggested that, um, exactly as you mentioned, Mike, there's a lot of financial um, pressure on these charities, but they were, in terms of their priorities, it wasn't let's wind things up. It was actually mostly about let's try and diversify our, our income and let's try and find new funding sources and let's try and so essentially digging their heels in and saying no, no we need to survive this um you know this reduction of funding then of course the question is why i mean we've talked about hamster wheel already and the fact that they feel that there's a need to continue consolidating charities together is a good idea but it is obviously very hard to do it seems that it's very hard to do it's and the industry hard. yeah the industry doesn't really um support that so most of the funding, of course, goes to the bigger charities. Uh, I think it's about half goes to the large size charities, of which there's only a hundred odd, between a hundred and hundred fifty, roughly. Yeah. Um, you know, so these are the charities that are over-consuming um, the the budget that overall exists, and it's kind of like a pack of lions. You've got these, you know, uh, alpha lions that are over-consuming the resources and not caring for the young and nurturing them to come up. Um, and unfortunately, we see that cycle over and over again. Very difficult. Um, and, and I think part of the reason that you don't see more charities consolidate and merge is that why would boards or management teams want that? Or, you know, yeah. it, it, it means reduction in uh, staff as well and uh, redundancies across the board, not the way you mean it. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, often a lot of the time, um, board members, chairs, executive teams want to see a legacy continue. So I think we've got this big conflict um, in terms of what I've observed in the space between making a huge impact, um, but not wanting to let go of the dream of that impact growing and continuing forever. Yep. I mean, you used the phrase branding earlier on. So I think it is a lot about branding and identity. And um, it's kind of, you know, having your, your it's like a football team kind of thing. And um, when you go out, into communities overseas and um, into the field, as they say. So you'll see people with the World Vision T-shirts and you'll see people with the Oxfam T-shirts. And that always kind of reminded me of, you know, like, you know, uh, Panthers or, you know, Adelaide Crows kind of thing. Like, this is my team and this is how we um, we identify. And then, of course, the flip side of that is a mistrust towards the other ones. You know? yep. So, you know, um, oh, I don't, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a World Vision guy. I'm not a... Um, you know, say the children guy kind of thing. So it, it's very much about identity and then forming factions. And that, of course, doesn't then promote collaboration either. Mm, and and it, what, what concerns me in particular, I guess, is that if what you're saying is right, which I'm sure it is, you know, that, that you've got like that line or pack mentality where the bigger just get bigger because they've got the the branding dollars, the support, the, the big names on the board and whatnot. What happens to all the other fantastic charities out there who are doing maybe more impactful or greater work um, with much less resourcing? They don't get a seat at that table or any more pie um, that's already taken up. So we are kind of in a space where 
it doesn't look like the biggest charities are looking to wind themselves up anytime soon. They're not the ones no. speaking to that gospel. So you're going to continue to have the bigger getting bigger, but the causes just seem to keep getting um, bigger as well, like what they need to actually fulfill that. Um, and you're not going to see that being solved anytime soon. So I do fear a little bit for the smaller or mid-sized charities in the space that we're in today. And I think also we have to think about this in terms of structure. So it's very, very clear. I try to make it very clear in the book. I'm not trying to demonize individuals, people, charities. It's more about thinking about why the structure is this way because it keeps on repeating itself. So there's an example in there called the Grand Bargain where they tried to increase the amount of funding that goes to local actors in um, developing countries. They found that only 4%, sorry, only 2% of funding went to those. And so they said, oh, we're going to increase it to 4% in a certain time frame." And what ended up happening was it reduced to 1%. <laughs> so it was an out-and-out -out failure. And, you know, despite best intentions, there's something structural there, which is beyond me for sure, to understand all of those intricacies. But there's something structural there that's forcing um, the flow of funding to go to the bigger charities and to go to those international charities. And as you mentioned, it's unfortunate because there's a lot of good work that can be done by the smaller local actors. So you do talk um, in your TED talk about the importance of local leadership. So I know you touched on it earlier, but just as a rejoinder, you know, why does local leadership matter so much for international charities? Yeah. So I think there's two areas of reasons. The first is the moral one, the moral argument of, you know, we, it's not up to us to, to tell Cambodian people, in my example, um, how to go about rebuilding their lives. And Cambodia is a country, unfortunately, that has been dominated by foreign forces historically multiple ways of which the latest one is the NGOism um, of the you know solving the, the social issues that are happening in Cambodia and then the second thing is the pragmatic thing so in my example I lived in Cambodia for five years I could speak the local language to a professional level um, but I still didn't understand really many things I remember you know you walk out to the street we've all had this example and you see something and you, and you just think well, what is going on here I have no concept <laughs> of of this you know I've, I've lived here for four or five years and it's still a complete mystery so in order for, for decisions to be made about the um, the charity it has to be done by someone who's ideally lived their whole life there and really mm. understands the systems a lot better than I would Yes, I love that. And I think there are just also a myriad of um, uh, like colonialist reasons not to just think we know best for other people in other countries, um, mm. you know. So nothing about us without us is one that I really like. And, and certainly for people in a country that you support, they're the ones who, who know the most on the ground. So kudos on that front. You do also mention um, in your TED Talk that there are three big questions to ask when supporting an international mm. charity. Um, bonus points, I'm sure you can remember them, but I'd love to know what they are because um, I saw them and I thought they were great, but I'd love to hear them through your lips. Whew. All right, let me think. Uh, so who will you hand the work off to? No, when will you exit? Yeah, how will you exit? And who will you hand your work off to? Or what happens next is the third one. So, you know, we talk about, again, this is about coming right back to the beginning. What does a successful charity look like? To me, these are three pretty decent questions to work that out. So, you know, um, when is that exit going to happen? Is it time bound? What are the steps that you're taking? So how are you going to get there? And then the third thing is, well, what happens after you leave? And I think with charities, it's like a lot of things in life. We tend to focus on the short-term thing that's right in front of us. So I talk about this 10 to 15-year charity lifespan that you know, we then um, we then report on as well. We say, you know, in this time, we have affected X number of lives. 
But what about when the charity is done? And what about about all of eternity afterwards? Like, what have we set up um, itself, you know, ourselves up to influence? You know, you're you're a father, so you, you think about this with your with your child. That you know, it's not just about what you do when that child lives with you, but what kind of adult have you set that child up to be uh, to then make decisions in the future? Yeah, totally. That, that's really well said. I love I love those three questions. I thought they were really pertinent. And what actually struck me is um very interesting about them is they're actually venture capital style questions. Oh. So, you know, on, on the opposite side of the curve, um, you know, when will you exit and how will you exit are really good questions for venture when you're thinking about 10-year funds or, or timelines. Um, so, I, I mean, that's just just a really interesting sort of like um, parallel thing to think about. Um you know, asking similar questions because you eventually you always have an end date or an exit in mind as well. So you've mm-hmm. got to sort of think strategically that way. I, I wonder also, you know, with this sort of thing, and maybe what I was angling at earlier is we're starting to see some really interesting organisations here um, talk about 10-year strategic plans rather than, you know, there was, there's a bit of a divide in thinking in their full-purpose space. There are full-purpose organisations because things have been so volatile that say we've got a one or two-year strategic plan now instead of a three traditional three- to five-year strategic plan. Some other ones that are maybe your bigger-picture thinkers who are like, doing maybe the more way approach, the redundancy charity approach is saying, here's our 10-year plan that we're going to stick to, and this is what we want to see at that 10-year stage. I wonder what you think about that and sort of those sort of uh, emerging trends. I think it's really great to have a long-term vision. And I, this is going to sound a bit like a cop-out, Mike, but and I also think that it's good to be flexible. So I'll, I'll give you a very real example. So the team from Cambodia came to visit Australia recently. We had a conversation about this endpoint, 2030 with 100 therapists uh, integrated public sector. And they were basically saying that time frame aside, the actual goal fits very nicely on a website, on a business card, on a brochure, but the, act- but the result that they are thinking about creating is obviously a lot more complicated than one sentence, of course. So they talked about, um, you know, a a ground-up approach that is more complex and there are ways in which they could measure the outcome, but it's still going to be in the original vision but stated slightly differently, I guess, when it's it's done. And they sort of asked my, my opinion was, and firstly, of course, I said, well, I'm not really in charge anymore. So, you know, whatever you guys decide, you've got your own system to work it out. Um, but I think also it makes sense that, um, you know, we should be updating our thinking because when we wrote that 100-year, sorry, when we wrote the 100-therapist thing by 2030, that was 10 years ago. We've had 10 years of learning since then. Of course, it would be completely brainless to stick to that and think that's the be-all and end-all. It's a very diplomatic answer. It's a bet each way. So thank you, Wei. <laughs> oh, <good. laughs> um, and, and so, I mean, one thing that I think is interesting as well um, is, you know, that shift from quantitative to qualitative. So thinking about what sort of change you're creating, the impact that you're changing when you exit. And um, maybe if you could speak to the shift towards uh, the idea of capacity or local capability building, uh, I know that's bandied around a lot as kind of sexy, or it's actually not that sexy, but just, you know, it's used a lot in international development. But I think mm-hmm. what you're talking about when you're talking about international charities and redundancy really is about leaving behind um, a strong uh, change system that, that's able to be uh, self-sustaining. So, I, 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 you know that phrase, uh, give a man a fish and the teach a man a fish thing. So, let's just use the word person because it's probably yeah. better than saying man. But yeah. So, the, 
that's seen as the way forward. Now, I propose a third model. And the reason why giving a man to fi- a person to fish and teaching man to fish are um, not enough is because they're not taking a system, uh, ecosystem view. In, in the example of speech therapy in Cambodia, even the teaching a person to fish model is um, Western volunteers flying in and out of Cambodia yearly to give training and capacity building. And then they'll come back next year and they'll repeat the exact same thing. And then the staff that they train will leave the sector. Maybe they'll have babies or they'll go on to do a different job. That knowledge is lost. Then we'll start all over again next year and we do this cycle over and over again. And still no Cambodian university course in speech therapy and no um, demand and no ground up knowledge. So the third one is let's help Cambodia create its fishing industry. So let's talk about a systems approach which involves government involvement, um, a university course, a governing body, and an actual profession. And that's obviously a lot more complex than the first two examples, but it does leave that legacy behind. It does allow us to leave. With the first two, the very simple question has to be asked, of course, is when is this going to end? And the answer is never. Like there's no endpoint with the first two models. So I think um, we've got to go beyond that simplistic thinking into something a bit more complex. I love it. I think that's a perfect use of the analogy, the person with the, the fishing rod or do you give them the fish? What I thought you were going to say is it's all about just filling up the the local lakes and ponds with more fish. Uh, <laughs> but I, I like the fishing village infrastructure. Um, you know, it makes total sense. So that that's brilliant. Way, um, I can't wait to read your book. I'm really excited about it, uh, as you know. Um, how can people Thanks, uh, pre-order the book? Where can they go? And if you can give us, uh, if you can let the Humans of Purpose fans know how you're caring for them to, to get involved. <laughs> well, um, the good news is that by the time the podcast is out, it won't be a pre-order. It'll be an order um, oh. because everything will be out and ready to go. So um, they can go to redundantcharities.com. And they can order through there using the code Humans of Purpose 20, all caps, Humans of Purpose 20, and they'll get a 20% discount on the book. And that'll be shipped out as a paperback uh, version anywhere in Australia. Shipping is, I think, $3. Um, and then at the end of September, it'll be available as an ebook and as a paperback through Amazon and other booksellers. And then sometime, Mike, when I get time, it'll be an audiobook yes. probably early next year i'd say yes yeah. you, you need to think about all the all the dads who just don't have time to pick up a paperback i, I mean selfishly i would just like to hear your sultry tones read me your <laughs> I, mean, I, would, I would i'm very lazy and i would enjoy that so pl- please go ahead and do that at some as point. long as you promise not to put it on two times speed i'm happy to, happy to i would never that. do that I, i'm not a butcher <laughs> i would never do that um way thank you so much for joining me if people want to connect with you is there a good way to, to reach you or they want to learn more about your work Definitely. So all the standard social media platforms, um, even threads briefly, um, although I did forget about it, like probably everyone else, like, oh, yeah, this is a thing. Came back to it yesterday. Um, no TikTok, uh, but uh, yeah, you. social media. And then also my own website is my first name, W-E-H, last name, Y-E-O-H.com. Fantastic, mate. Stick on the line and uh, we'll close up here and we'll have a quick debrief. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.